Welcome to Flyers AD. Here it is, uh, Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. I'm used to saying that now. Um, Flyers uh, opened up 2022 just like they ended in 2021, being a miserable piece of shit. Uh, they lost to, the <laughs> <laughs> lost to the LA Kings last night. Uh, and the first game that I officially just waved the white flag and went to bed on. It was like 1 a.m. at the second admission. I'm like, fuck this. Much rather just sleep than than stay up and watch them get their asses beat, and that's what happened. So uh, I made the right decision at the end of the day. And uh, Flyers after dark almost over. Got one more game against the Ducks on was that Tuesday night? Yeesh. One more. That's only a 10 p.m. start. So I guess it's not. It's bad, but it's not that bad. I guess. Then then they finally head back home. Uh, Pittsburgh, San Jose, Carolina. <laughs> awesome, Boston, New York. So things uh. And I'll pick back up again here. This was their stretch of supposed easier games. And they have been racking up some points lately. But uh, for the most part, their play overall has not seemingly improved a whole lot uh, yet. Uh, no, nah, man. <laughs> I mean, last night was better, I guess. But even at that, like, I just I felt like the Flyers gave up a lot of chances, more chances as the game dragged on. I thought the first period they kind of hung with the Kings and then they made a couple of stands maybe near the end of the second and at the beginning of the third. Obviously, we'll talk about the ballsy six-on-three goal that Mike Yo had, which was actually kind of cool to see, the outside the box. But, I mean, it's still kind of the same old, same old story that, uh, you know, the Flyers just getting outplayed losing the expected goals battle losing the possession battle the territorial battle as a high danger chances you know they gave up 220 against last night for natural statric and it just feels like the expectations are going lower and lower and lower and you know i put out the tweet this morning that since the coaching change they're five three and two and, I mean, on the surface, that's obviously better than, you know, losing 10 games in a row like they were experiencing under AV, or I think there was eight in a row under by the time AV got canned. But it just, it feels like the Flyers have looked better offensively, power play-wise, transitionally and all that. But, I mean, I feel like they have looked like a tire fire without the puck and in their own and de- defensively since the coaching change, which we kind of talked about under AV. When people were freaking out that all he did was dump and chase and you and I were on here and said, yeah, you could try and go with more zone entries and try and like attack more. But the thing is, is that when your team just isn't that good offensively, specifically, specifically the forwards, you're going to be kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul and risk, you know, bleeding chances defensively. And that's certainly been the case. I find their PK has looked kind of worse. Uh, not the, I think they've dropped by 3% under Yo, which is kind of weird because he was the guy running the PK under AV. But I mean, look, the results are better on the surface. They picked up 12 of the possible 20 points under Yo, but in terms of the process and their gameplay, especially given the fact of the quality of teams or lack thereof that they're playing, they've been playing under Yo, it's not all that much better. No, and you know, not overly unexpected. I sat here for months. Everyone would fire the, uh, everybody wanted AV fired, and you're like, well, you know what's actually going to change when you get rid of AV? And you know, we've we've been what 10, 11 games into Mike Yao's stretch here, so we've 
he has a bit of a chance to put his thumbprint on here, but for the most part, it's still the same lackluster, mediocre group of players that just uh, can't quite get it done. And, you know, last night was a, a defensive nightmare for the team. Uh, the, you know, Provorov got outworked on both of the first Kings goals uh, pretty badly, actually. And uh, it's just uh, not looking great. Connaughton, who was seemed like a good stopgap originally, has <laughs> definitely overstayed his Awful. welcome. Keith Yandel's a mess. <laughs> Braun is... Good, but over his head, and Risto Sandheim continue to be the only thing resembling a clue when it comes to playing semi-competent defense on the blue line. So, yeah, it is uh, not going great. And Ryan Ellis is still missing in action. Um, no word on anything regarding his, uh, you know, future yet, which uh, doesn't help when your top guy is not in the lineup when everything is falling apart. Yeah, I mean... Everyone is trying to figure out a way to fix the defense. Like the whole Cam York discussion has been just mind numbing lately because it's either you get people who think the guy's a piece of shit and garbage or they say like, oh, he has to come up and play. Like I heard some guy, uh, some guy told me yesterday, like he should come in and play on the top in the top four right now. He has to play. And I'm just like, okay, so you think bringing him up and playing him on the right side in the top four on this mediocre best team <laughs> is the best thing for his long-term development. And you know what, man? You can't convince me that Connaughton or Sealer or Yandel are better than York. I think that York would at least be as good. He can't really be worse, and obviously it would be something different, and you have a guy with a higher upside and all that. But the thing is, it's like, this team's a lost cause with or without Cam York yes. in terms of anything other than barely making the playoffs, which I still think they may do because, you know, that second wildcard uh, spot is completely up for grabs, although I think Boston has several games in hand, and I kind of expect them to kind of run away Five with it. And the Islanders, I believe, have run. Jesus. Exactly. Like Pittsburgh's kind of separated themselves from the pack, and Boston has five games in hand, and I, are they tied in points with the Flyers? Yes. Uh, and the Islanders, I like, I know they've had a really tough go so far this season, but that wouldn't shock me if they come back in. But, I mean, like I've maintained, I wouldn't be surprised if the Flyers go on some heroic run once Ellis gets back, if that even happens. But the thing is, is that aside from making the playoffs, this season is a lost cause. In terms of anything substantial, it's not happening, with or without Cam York. So at that point, why would you try and bring him up and put him in a position that he's almost bound to not succeed in? You're either going to bring him up and play him on the third pair with either Keith Yandel or Kevin Connaughton, maybe on his offside, or you're going to put him in the top four. And even if you, let's say, put Sanheim on the right side with Provorov and put York with Ristolainen in, I don't think York Ristolainen is exactly a recipe for success. And I don't think breaking up Sanheim and Ristolainen, as you just pointed out, has been the only bright spot on the back end lately, is necessarily a good thing. It's just there's nothing right now that can justify bringing Cam York up into the lineup. Now, like we've said, when Justin Braun is able to go back down to the third pair and he can play with York, then absolutely – but until then, I really just don't see the point of bringing up a guy like Cam York. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense from from a positional standpoint, him being a lefty. You know, he's better than Sealer, better than Connaughton, probably better, <laughs> better than Yandel at this point. And he 
he's a guy I think you'd call up and he would be fine in the role. But, you know, you either call him up and put him on the third pair right side, which would be his off wing, and just let him deal with that, which isn't good, with Keith Yandel. Or you call York up, put him on the left side, put Yandel on his offside on the right, which I feel like trying to hinder that guy any further than he already is is a bad idea. Or you have to shake up your whole defense pairs. It's just, it just isn't worth it. It just, he may very well be ready, but it's just more about there's no open holes in the lineup for him to come in and make the jump. And the guy who just, you can call him up and put him in the top four, but he's, he's a lefty. You know, I think people forget kind of the, the handedness. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I. I wouldn't mind seeing York up. He is on the trip with them. He's part of the taxi squad. But uh, as far as getting into the lineup, I don't really think we see him unless either Prover or Sanheim go down to injury. And, you know, the other thing is, is that I just, is he the difference between them winning games or not? Probably not. Like if we're being, <laughs> exactly. And it was kind of like the same argument when people were saying, oh, you know, uh, Nate Thompson can't be in the lineup. Is that going to be the difference? Now you have Noah Cates and Max Willman in the lineup. Is that the difference to them winning games and or playing better? And then, you know, you I, I spoke to someone in the organization the other day. They told me that he has still some work to do, although he did tell me that he believes that we will see him with the Flyers at some point, which I do believe. I do think that once Ellis is back and they have Justin Braun there to play with the Cam York on the bottom pair, I think that's when you see him. And obviously the Keith Yandel thing probably is playing a factor, if we're being honest. But it's also like you have a guy like Tony Andrakaitis, who is probably the beat. He's a beat reporter for the Phantoms, correct? Yes. And then you have yourself, who is a season ticket holder, and everyone is kind of singing at the same song that this guy isn't ready. So if he isn't ready, Fire's team really isn't contending for anything worth a shit. Are you going to risk hampering arguably your best prospects' development just to come in and say, well, at least Keith Yandel and Kevin Connaughton aren't playing? Yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense right now. If Ellis comes back and you can put him with Provorov, you keep Sam and Rister together, and then you want a York Braun on the third pair, fine. But, you know, outside of that, just whether it's Connaughton or Sealer or Yandel, just throwing him, <laughs> a classic case of NHL 22, you just want to throw him in the lineup just for the sake of saying he's in the lineup, even if it doesn't make any goddamn sense. And, you know, this is real life, and York is... Good. I do think that he could hang, you know, his game is well enough he could hang, but I don't think he's necessarily ready to take the world by storm. He hasn't, wasn't kicking down the door or anything with the Phantoms, so. It just, uh, just isn't the right time, you know. He'll be up soon enough, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, for right now, it's just kind of better that you just kind of, you unfortunately have to roll with this, this mess until Yandel gets his streak and Ryan Ellis comes back, which, you know, at this point may, uh, may never happen moving forward. <laughs> And it's like you said, it's the NHL 22 syndrome. And, you know, you have people, because I brought up the thing with Justin Braun and you replied to it. And there really is no wrong answer. Like I said, a three-year deal, one million per year. And, you know, we talked about it a bit a few shows ago. But you have some people as their justification is, well, you, I don't want him to block Zamula or York. And it's just like, there's so many things wrong with that argument. <laughs> For one, like you said... You're just blatantly ignoring the hand in this. I don't believe either of those guys have played on the right side for extended stretches, which is saying something because the only right shot defensemen, I believe you said, are Wiley and Clendenning with the Phantoms. Yep. So, 
And Braun is the type of guy that you want playing with a young left shot defenseman. And I guess we could kind of transition into that argument, uh, that topic a bit, although we already did touch on it, so we shouldn't spend too much time. But like a three year deal, one million dollars. Is that something you would explore, assuming that they do keep wanting to contend here? Because obviously the best idea would just be to sell off a guy like Braun, arguably Risto and all that. But if they do want to continue down this unfortunate path that they're on, would you give Braun term if it meant getting some getting him for something close to league minimum, like one million? Yeah, I, I mean he's gonna be thirty five next month, um, so three years, you know, probably isn't super ideal for the guy. You know, it's not like he's gonna be getting any faster at this point in his career. But if it means you can snag him for one year. And at that point, if you have to bury him in the AHL, it's not a big deal, you know, at the last year of that deal or something. Um, but what a lot of Braun's fate to me, and, you know, we touched upon this yesterday um, in, in our Twitter exchange, was the fate of Ryan Ellis and what you ultimately expect from him. If you're Chuck Fletcher, you cannot think of Ryan Ellis as an everyday option moving forward. You have to think of Ryan Ellis as more of a luxury. You have to account for the guy playing like 40 games. You know, you need kind of that backup plan to fill in on the right side when Ellis isn't available. You know, if he comes in next year and he somehow plays all 82 games, great! You got Ryan Ellis for 82 games, but you have to plan on him not being ready for 82 games. And I think Braun is very, very good. I think he's been underrated on this team since he got here, essentially. But uh, I, I just don't think at this point in his career he can be on the top line every single night. You know, when Ryan Ellis first went down after the Dallas game, um, Braun looked good for those few games, and then, you know, it's just it's just too much for him at this point in his career. So I, I think finding somebody... I assume they keep Risto. I don't think he's going anywhere at this point. You know, finding somebody that can be a top four guy if necessary, but you can also put on the third pair. You know, you mentioned Ruda on Twitter. I had somebody more like Josh Manson in mind, but he may be out of your price range, but somebody like that, somebody that may be just a step ahead of Braun at this point. And it's nothing against Braun. It's just more the state of your defense, uh, that it, the state of that your defense is in away from Justin Braun being Ryan Ellis and, you know, Ristolainen. Ristolainen is very good. He's been very good this year, but I don't necessarily want to thrust him into a number one right-handed defenseman role if I don't have to, right? So you need that kind of guy that can uh, transition between your first and third pair a little better. And to me, you know, it would need to be somebody like Manson or, you know, whoever the hell would be available on the trade market. I have not looked into that uh, too far yet. It's a little too early. Um, but uh, that would be... So <laughs> three years for one million for Braun, I guess would be fine. I wouldn't have a problem with it. But I do think that if you can find a legitimate upgrade for your third pair right-handed defenseman, you might have to look into it. You, you make a very good point with the fact that you have to account for Ellis missing up to half the season. Because if he, let's say for argument's sake, if he was a guy who didn't have these issues and he played always, let's say, at least 70 games a year, would you be more willing to do that contract with Justin Braun? Sure, yeah. So, and that's the thing is that now you also have to kind of account for your number. Arguably, your top defenseman isn't going to be there for long stretches. And I guess that's where it does kind of benefit you more to have a guy like Ruda or um, Josh Manson, as you mentioned. 
And then there is the whole wrist aligning thing that, like, I think he's very solid in his role as a number four defenseman. But, you know, we've brought up our hearts kind of take a couple leaps when we see that he's playing on the top pair. <laughs> and then it always comes back to this argument with Ivan Provorov. And it's, I don't think you can justify in any way that Ivan Provorov has been good. As you mentioned, he got outworked on two of those goals and... It's very unfortunate what's going on with Ivan Provorov right now. But, you know, I keep looking at who he has played with. And, you know, forget about early on in his career when he was saddled to Andrew McDonald. But, like, since the bubble, since Matt Nissian retired, you've had kind of, like, a motley crew of Justin Braun. And we love Justin Braun, like, as a third-pairing guy. And he's been a warrior for this team. But it's been like Justin Braun or Shane Gosses be on his offside, Phil Myers, I believe Eric Gustafson got a stint there. Like, has your has your opinion changed at all on Ivan Provorov, even given how bad he's playing, or do you still kind of just chalk it up that he's being asked to do far too much here? I just think he's asked to do too much. I, I he has flashes of brilliance still. He has those good games, but he has the bad games and. I think when you're Ivan Provorov, <laughs> basically the only thing resembling a top guy on this team, you know, he just can't, he's just, it's just too much for the guy. I mean, he's playing like 27 minutes a night right now. Like, that's the kind of shit that I'm glad he can do. It's good to see, but uh, that's the kind of shit that catches up to you pretty quick. And I, I just think he's overworked. He's doing too much. He needs somebody that he can count on. And it's no coincidence that he succeeded with somebody like Matt Niskin and it looked good with Ryan Ellis in the short time that they've been together, you know, kind of getting that, that opportunity to play with somebody that knows what the fuck they're doing out there. And, you know, again, this goes back to Braun of he's very good, but you know, is he a top pair guy at this point in his career? And, you know, I just think you need somebody else to come in and kind of be able to take some of that weight off of him. And you really don't have that guy, you know, again, Ristolainen and Sam are playing well, but they're more, for different roles. They're not top guys. They're guys that are working well together, but I don't want either one of those two being the unquestioned number one defenseman on the team. You know, maybe he's not as good, but, you know, we've talked about the difference between a number one defenseman versus an elite defenseman in the past. I still think Provarov is number one. I just think he's being completely left out to dry here and really just has not had the opportunity to play next to somebody that can help buoy his game long-term at this point in his career. And I've all, and I think it's incredibly important to preface this that this isn't us justifying that he is an elite number one defenseman. No, like not at he's all. not with the, he's not like with the Fox or the Headman or the Yosti or McAvoy. But I still do think that he has a skill set that matches a number one defenseman, and I do think that there's evidence that when he has a competent partner a guy who at least belongs in a top four. Like, I don't think that Matt Niskin was even a bona fide top pairing guy. I think he was just a very good, like, top-of-the-line second-pair defenseman, low-end first-pair defenseman. But every time he's had a competent partner, he's put up extremely good seasons. Like, obviously, small sample size with Ellis, but in those three games with Ryan Ellis, he played fantastic. The 2019-20 with Matt Niskin, he was absolutely uh, incredible. And then the 2017-18, when Shane Gossesbeer was at the top of his game, Provorov was fantastic as well. It's just, if you don't 
Edmund or a Yossi or a McAvoy or anything like that. And even a McAvoy, you know, he was broken into the NHL with Zdeno Chara back when he still was a pretty good defenseman. And now he's played a lot with Matt Greslick this year. Greslick, in my opinion, is one of the more underrated defensemen in the entire NHL. But I don't know what else you could ask of a guy like Provorov when he's played with defensemen who are best served for the bottom pair, not even number four like Ristolainen. You're asking him to play with guys who are worse than Ristolainen. I think that's comparable. And Morgan Riley following, I believe it was 17-18, where he had probably his best season. And then in 1819, it was 1819-1920, I forget the exact years, but he had a very down year because he was playing with like Ron Hainsey on the top pair. And then what happened? They go out and they get T.J. Brody. And T.J. Brody has really salvaged the career of Morgan Riley. And that's not to say that I think T.J. Brody is, you know, carrying Morgan Riley or Morgan Riley's a crap defenseman without T.J. Brody. But I think Riley is a number one guy, but not an elite guy who needs a steady, you know, calming presence beside him. And I think that's what Niskanen and now Ellis, when he has been around, did for Ivan Provorov. And there's just many examples of that where there are some defensemen that just need very good or just good, competent partners on their top pair. And I look at defensemen around the league, like how many defensemen could have done better in Ivan Provorov's position? Like, especially last year, like at least this year, you could say that he's had a solid second pair behind him. You know, Ristolainen and Sandheim have been two of the bright spots this season, but like Last year, like, Sanheim was very up and down. Myers was a fucking disaster. Gustafson was a fucking disaster. Hag and Braun were, you know, they are what they are. Ghost was decent in the lineup, but kind of need that sheltered role. Now, this year, you're playing with a guy, a, thir- a soon-to-be 35-year-old Justin Braun, who hasn't been a top-four defenseman in probably two calendar years. Very good third-pair guy, but should- belongs nowhere near a top pair. So... I mean, it's easy to crap on him. Obviously, that he hasn't been good. There's been tangible evidence that he has struggled a lot lately. But in my opinion, it's just how many guys could have done better than he has given the same circumstances. Probably not many. And that's that's what it ultimately comes down to. You know, some people say like, oh, yeah, I want to trade him and this and that. You can trade him at this point. I, like, I'm not married to have many guys on this team, but... I just come back to what do you think, like, unless you're getting a Victor Hedman type of defenseman, I don't see any, like, imminent improvement if you trade Ivan Provorov. No, you know, <clears throat> even somebody like Chitrin uh, at this point, you know, you even you go out and get him, great. Maybe he's a slight improvement, but if you're giving up Provorov plus to get him, it doesn't make any goddamn sense to begin with, so... Yeah, you're just kind of kind of stuck with this blue line altogether, as is for the time being, until Brian Ellis comes back. And you know, even if Yandel breaks his, the fucking Iron Man streak, I highly doubt he's sitting the second he breaks it. There's no way. He's going to keep playing. I'll be here the rest of the year. you got to account for it. Which is uh, and too bad, actually. But even Keith Yandel, and look, he's been crap, right? But everyone who says, oh, he has to sit, he has to sit, he has to sit... Is Sealer Connaughton going to be better? Like, that's what it... Yeesh. Probably not. That's what it... But that's what it comes down to. Like, if you want to say Keith Yandel sucks and it's a travesty that he's there or number five right now, yeah, I'll agree with you. But 
is are the replacements better? And then okay, play Cam York, but you're gonna play Cam York with Kevin Connaughton or Nick Sealer, possibly on his offside. Probably not because those two have been playing their offside. But you know the point still stands. Like, and the and you know an analytics guy who usually like makes my head hurt had a good point yesterday. Like. This wasn't the plan for Keith Yandel to be your number five defenseman playing with Connaughton or Sealer. He was supposed to be playing with Justin Braun. Yeah. And again, small sample size, but if memory serves me correctly, he looked just fine with Justin Braun. Those two were pretty good early in the year together, if I remember correctly. And I still do believe that if we ever got to see that ever again, it would probably look substantially better. Like, had Yandel and Braun been playing together for at least like 20 more games than they have now, I think we would be seeing a different tune. But um, this is not me justifying that Keith Yandel has been good. It's just saying like, what's the better option here? Like, again, would York maybe be better? Probably, but what are you going to do in terms of his long-term development playing him beside Kevin Connaughton or Keith Yandel? And is him playing over Connaughton or Yandel the difference between winning or in losing hockey games. Like that's what it comes down to, to me. It's not an argument over whether or not these guys are good. It's just like, is the all, is the, um, what's the fucking word I'm looking for? Is the other option better? That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I don't think so. Um, if York comes up, you're going to have to play Yandelon's off wing. I don't think you're going to force York to play on his offside five games into his NHL career, whatever the hell he's at doesn't make a lot of sense so not sure not sure if you want to you know hamper Yandel any further than he already is but uh yeah if I remember correctly Yandel and Braun were very good during the preseason and earlier in the year and looking good and then you know Braun gets taken away from him to go cover for Ellis who's been out for you know the whole fucking year at this point and uh you get stuck with uh, the scraps because there's no actual depth here whatsoever, <laughs> especially on the right side. And you just have, uh, you know, Kevin Connaughton and Seal or just some random fucking dudes in there filling in for him. So if they had a legitimate fallback option there, maybe it would be fine. Or if Braun was able to go down to the third pair and play third pair minutes, I'm sure he would look substantially better as well. So, you know, just got to deal with it again. This all kind of goes back to Ryan Ellis not being, uh, not being here, not being available and, uh, who the hell knows? I don't know if we've actually heard any updates. Last time I heard it was, oh, well, 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 after the holidays. Well, we're after the holidays now. And it's time to uh, <laughs> see something. But guess not. <laughs> Are you even that surprised? If we're no. <laughs> He's like Luke Skywalker when he fucked off to the mountain in the new set trilogy of Star <laughs> Wars movies. But do you think in hindsight, because obviously in the moment, it was still a great trade in terms of value. But... Do you think that the thought process to go out and get Ryan Ellis and kind of be the linchpin to a successful season or not was a mistake on Fletcher's part? I don't think it was. You got him for essentially nothing in Nolan Patrick and Phil Myers. Just two fucking overhyped nobodies. So it's not a bad trade. Even still, it's not a bad trade. But I think you kind of cheaped out a little bit there. You know, at this point, I would have rather paid Dougie Hamilton $9 million to come in and be healthy every night, contribute, rather than Ryan Ellis, who you got for $3 million cheaper, but he's only going to play 30 to 40 games a season. You know, you you, you got to take the good with the bad in that one. And hell, I was all on board getting somebody like 
you know, Hamilton and Seth Jones last like, you need two guys, you know, and, and Ristolainen has been good in his role, but again, we talked about it before, you don't want to give him more than he can handle, because you're going to see him fall apart real quick, and Braun just isn't ready to handle it, and you kind of went in with this Ellis thing, I mean, it's not like his injury history was a secret, we had Robbie Stanley on the show in the offseason, right before the Flyers acquired him, and asked about Ryan Ellis, because the rumors were going there, and he said the same thing, well, he's got an injury history, you got to be careful of that, and it bit the Flyers three games into the year, you know, so, it's, uh... I don't know. It's not great. Not uh, it, the trade itself. I think is still good because I think when Ellis does eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later, come back, he'll be a perfectly fine defenseman. He'll bring more value than Nolan Patrick and Phil Myers combined. But at the end of the day, if he's not in the lineup, it you know it's just it, it's more just a trade that cancels itself out versus being a win for the Flyers. Yeah, I'm right there with you because in a vacuum, what they gave up, they gave up spare parts for him. Yes. They gave up their worst defenseman from last year and their worst def- forward from last year. And I think they've come, I think the three of them combined have played like 22 games. So Is it even it's that not, uh, I think so because I think, I think Patrick's Myers, at five, Ellison four. What's Phil Myers doing these days? Because uh, he's see. been up and down from the AHL or something, I think. He's got 12 games. All right. So, yeah, it's close. No, 21 games. So, I it, it's still a good trade in terms of that, but it's a bad trade when I guess you kind of look at the philosophy behind it. Because he was the, he you know, for lack of better terms, he was the linchpin to this season. He was the guy that was going to come in, finally be the facsimile, if not better, for Matt Niskanen beside Provorov. He was going to keep Justin Braun on the third pair. He was going to stabilize everything, help the power play, help the penalty kill, like all situations, defensemen, be a leader in the locker room, a guy that we talked about that maybe could be a next captain, but then he's never there. And I don't think anyone could have foreseen injuries being this bad. Like even if he would have missed like 10 games to this point, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Like I was kind of expecting him to miss like, I don't know, like one in every five type of thing. Like he would play four, sit one. And I thought that the Flyers could have handled that. And early on in the year, they were able to kind of make do. But when you have Justin Braun playing top pair for an extended amount of time and Yandel with Kanaan or Sealer for an extended amount of time, it was only a matter of time before it fell apart. So I am kind of with you is that you kind of cheaped out in terms of giving up assets because you went after a guy with an injury history when there were other options, you know, there was Dougie Hamilton, there was Seth Jones. And while I'm not the biggest fan of what those guys got in terms of contracts, them being here all the time may have been the better option. And now maybe you wouldn't have been able to get, you know, risk, but maybe you could have went out and signed, I don't know, Zach Bogosian. And then you have at least Bogosian and Braun and Dougie Hamilton playing 28 minutes a night. So I I liked it in the moment. And in terms of the trade in a vacuum, I still like it because you gave up crap for him, for lack of better terms. But at the same time, this was the year that you were trying to get back into the playoffs and you made like this turnover of 25% of your roster and all this. But you're by far the biggest acquisition you made, and it really isn't that close, to be honest with you. You kind of, I don't half-assed it. Like, would you phrase it as a half-ass approach? What he did? 
Yeah, I, I, I think you cheaped out. You just you just kind of went for the low hanging fruit versus throwing your hat in the ring as somebody a little higher. And again, it's just any injuries could happen to anybody. You know, you could have signed Hamilton and he could have you know snapped his leg off and been gone for you know six months. It's fine, but. Ellis's injury history was known. It's not a secret. He's played one full game in his career. He's missed... Well, let's see. That's 15. There's another 15 or so. Uh, that's only half the season. <laughs> like, he's missed a whole lot of games over the last few years. And it's, it's just... I don't know. If he was here and contributing, it's fine. I, as well, was expecting him to miss... Maybe only 20 or 30 games a season. Play, you know, 50 or 60. That would have been much better than this. But, I mean, at this point, you know, he's going to play maybe 30 if you're lucky. Maybe 40. I don't even know how many games left in the year at this point. But uh, it's not great. It really is not... It's not turning out well. And, again, the trade itself, I think, was still good. But uh, maybe you should have aimed a little higher this year. Well, especially when he was, you know, the big ad, you know, yeah. Briston line was a nice acquisition, Atkinson, whatever for Voracek, almost like a lateral move in a lot of ways, more this philosophical and um, salary standpoint. But it is kind of a tough pill to swallow and you still want to defend the trade because of who you gave up. And I still think that when Ellis is in the lineup, he's a very good defenseman, but you need him to be there, you know, and it's not like you got a young player who he's working through some injuries and then he's going to be here for the next 10 years. Like how many more years is Ryan Ellis going to be at that level? Like maybe another two or three, but then you also factor in how much time does Giroux still have and Couturier and, and Hayes and all that. And, you know, Hayes has been fucking awful. I find lately, but at the, I know he scored last night, but again, he's playing above his head and, it just seems like this entire season, and a lot of it has been because of injuries, and it's important to note that and not completely gloss over it, but it's just been like a season of guys playing above their heads, and with the defense probably because of injuries, but in terms of the forwards, man, it's like all these guys are playing way above their heads, and then... You know, you get a guy like Travis Konechny who, I mean, he's a fine 50-point guy and whatever, but, like, he's just doing things out there where you're just like, dude, I don't want you to try and fight Brandon Lemieux but not fight him and then go to the penalty box and say, dude, just score goals. And He's reaching you know, Abe Kubel levels of ridiculousness. At least he, with at least the fact that he produces points. Like, but, yeah, you're... He barely does that right. anymore. 16 goals in 98 games since the 2020 playoff bubble started. Yeehaw. And it's almost... <laughs> and it's almost kind of getting sad because you see people desperately trying to reach, like, they put together the Limblom frost Connecty line. And look, they've had flashes of looking good, like you had the setup on the Frost goal, I believe it was against the Sharks. But you, you know people are all horned up about it because it's those three guys who were drafted between 2014 and 2018, right? <laughs> yeah. And these were one of the lines that, you know, one of the prospect gurus, like, projected as, like, oh, this is going to be the top line at the All-Star game in 2020, you know, one what? day. And No, I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously, but you, you remember when, you know... It's hard to tell because I feel is, like that's something that could have very well actually been said. 
Well, remember when, you know who I'm talking about, did his roster projection and, you know, there's Noah Cates and mm. Jackson mm. Cates and Pascal <laughs> LaBerge. And I think that was like the top line or something. But it's just like you're reaching hard when you're trying to pump up a Limblom Frost Konechny line. And look, Limblom, I mean, it is what it is. They were trying to talk him up on the broadcast last night. Like, oh, Giroux says all the best players want to play with him and does all the little things right. And Frost has been good for what he does. I do think he's ultimately better on the wing. But, you know, as you said on our last show, he's come as advertised. And Konechny, whatever, decent second-line player who takes stupid penalties. But it's like, it's just sad that we've gone to a point where this is the line that people try and get all horned up about. Yeah. Backing most of these players these days actually really drive me nuts. Whether it's Konechny or James Van Riemsdyk. That was held down by Elaine Vio. They just limited his career. You know he was a minus 5 last night? He <laughs> oh was a minus God, 16 just... on the season. <laughs> Is he playing with Hayes and Farabee right now, or is he with Giroux and Atkinson? Because I know Willman's up there as well. Uh, I think it's Giroux, Atkinson, and Farabee last night, wasn't it? Oh, shit, I thought... Oh, fuck. So it was Willman, Hayes, JVR. I think so, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a rough one. But... Uh, I guess we could talk a bit about the coaching because now you have a 10 game sample size. I put a, you know, the five, three and two heavily mediocre, but what has been your overall takeaways from Mike Yo as head coach in comparison to Vino? He's, uh, he's a dude. All right. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I really don't think there's been seismic shifts. Like I was told there was going to be when they fired AV. Um, some things have gotten better. I, I think the offense, for the most part, has looked a little less burdened than they were under AV, but at the same time, the defense is kind of falling apart. The special teams are not very good. You know, the power play is firing a little more, but there's still a hot fucking mess on a night-to-night basis. The penalty kill has slipped a little bit. Like, you know, there have been some things that are better. I think Yao was a guy, ironically enough, maybe like Ristolainen himself, who... You know, maybe in that secondary role as an assistant, he can succeed. But the second he gets thrust into a a full time role, he's back to you know Minnesota Wild. Uh, you know, Mike Yao, and I don't know. I don't really have any super opinions on this either way yet. I, I think Yao has been fine, all things considered. But for the most part, you know, this has not been super effective coaching change to this point. Uh you know, the PK is a weird thing because I felt that under AV, that was like one of the few bright spots. And which is funny because Mike Yao is the penalty kill coach, right? And yeah. since he's taken over, and I guess it's Nick Schultz now who is taken over as the penalty kill guy, it's slipped. And, you know, it's only a bit of um, a couple percentages. I believe that under AV, their PK was like 82.5%. And now under Yao, it's like 79.8 or something like that. But then I also look at the shots against per game. And right now, they're second with 35 shots against per game on the season as a whole. But then under AV, they were not much better, but they were averaging 34.2 shots against per game. So that's uh, that I was fourth in the NHL. So then I start looking like, how did they drop that much under Mike Yao? 
And I thought that maybe some of it had to do with the, you know, the penalty kill and all that. And then I look and under Yao, they're giving up 35.2 shots per game. So, and then you look at the PK and that's dropped a bit. And it's not a huge difference in terms of percentages and shots against per game. But then I look at what I'm seeing with my eyes and what's going on when they don't have the puck in their own end. And I feel like there's a lot less structure to the way they're playing. And yeah. one thing I did like about AV, and even Terry for that matter, although I do think he kind of sacrificed offense to do so, is I felt that under AV there was always a structure. It wasn't always pleasant to watch and it didn't always work and certainly not this season. But I felt like there was always like a clear system they were playing. And under Mike Yao, it's just like, yeah, they're maybe a bit more fun to watch and they're generating more offense. And I think individually some forwards are excelling under him but as a team without the puck and in their own end and on the pk they look a lot worse and it just seems like it hasn't been like a stark contrast and there wasn't like this steep dropping off of a cliff but there's some evidence here that bit by bit by bit there's a gradual decline on the defensive side of the puck since the coaching change was made yeah and you know the the system it just doesn't feel like there's anything there but you know they, they are playing with less structure i think that's a good word um both offensively and defensively you know the offense less structured i think has helped them a little bit more and the defense less structured has hurt them a little bit more and you know i i guess they're still in the transition period as far as you know kind of instilling what mike yeah wants but at this point it doesn't seem like he's you know gonna bring in anything groundbreaking as far as coaching philosophy goes so yeah I, I kind of what I was expecting you know we all knew well you should have known Mike Yao was gonna be the next head coach but as far as being overly impressive you know I wasn't expecting a whole lot and I'm not getting a whole lot so I guess in that sense this is kind of uh as expected for Yao through 10 games and you know under AV they were giving up 3.18 goals per goals against per game and under Yao they're giving up 3.64 so, again, it's not like these massive differences. And you can make the argument that the offense, it, like the difference between the offense and the power play outweighs the di the negative dif difference on the defensive side of things. But it still is kind of telling that you really do have to sacrifice defense with this team if you want to score more goals. And that's what we were saying is that when AV was playing the dump and chase system and at times way too conservative in the neutral zone and on the forecheck, we, it didn't take a rocket scientist to say, well, if they start forechecking, their forwards are A, not skilled enough to maintain possession more times than not, and B, aren't fast enough to get back in the defensive zone. And their defense isn't good. Like, Charlie O'Connor had a very good tweet last night where he said the fact of the matter is, in terms of roster flaws, two of the biggest ones is that you have a below average top pair and a really bad bottom pair. And now that you're sacrificing, you know, some defense to score more goals, it's even that much more evident. Like, I thought, like, this is not to say that I thought the defense looked amazing under AV, but I felt that it looked passable. Like they were like they were treading water with that defensive group. Yeah. But under Mike Yo, it just looks so, so bad. Like it looks like last year's defense. So again, I'm not saying one system is better than the other. Like I really don't think they would have won more games with AV than Mike Yo. That's not what I'm saying. Like it really is changing four quarters for a buck. But that being said, 
you were changing four quarters for a buck for all these people that thought AV was the boogeyman and was the difference between them mm-hmm. being, you know, a, a bottom feeder and a bonafide playoff team. You're kind of seeing now that there is a reason that he was playing the way he was. Yeah, I would agree. And, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, you fire Yao and Vigneault and things are going to turn around and this is a cup caliber team. And it's like, no, it's 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 more the same. You know, maybe the AV structures were were better served just trying to, you know, play a little bit more uh, responsible, slightly better defensive hockey. Because that's just kind of what this team is. They're just not good enough to play a run-and-gun style of offense. And they're not defensively sound enough to try and go hard defensively. You know, you had to find that happy medium. And I think Vigneault at least did that well with the benefit of hindsight. Um trying to uh trying to control this roster a little bit so you know once again maybe once everyone gets healthy they do have some problems everyone's coming back i guess Derek broussard is finally rising from the dead again and is uh will rejoin the lineup and maybe once they get a little bit more help there we'll see some uh positives but uh until then i don't know it's uh looking like a lot more of the same which i was told was not gonna happen <laughs> not to strike well like for you like because i don't want to focus on Vigneault too much but like we'll just focus on the way they're playing because obviously there's intangibles involved and we can't really speak to if players quit on AV or not, which I'm sure there were some, but we can't say that definitively one way or the other. But as a system, when you watch them as a third-party journalist, do you think that the system they were playing with AV was better? For what they are, yes, I think so because they're just not a skilled enough team or talented enough to play Yo's system. Yes. So do you think that like, if they had even one more dynamic player, like let's say they had like a Tarasenko or Giroux was that guy from, I don't know, three, four years ago, something like that, or Konechny, you know, play, because I think he was kind of one of the guys that quit on AV Let's say he was a guy that played better. Like, do you think if they just had, like, one big offensive piece or a couple more guys playing better that it would have been a different story? If you were just even slightly better with your forwards and everyone was on their, you know, 1920 pace, yeah. You need a little more life up front. I think you can make this system work. But I don't think you have the talent to be a super offensively driven team right now. And especially when you're just giving up defensively, you know, your defense is not strong enough to, to withhold things, you know, it's, it's, you need, you need some help up front if you're going to try and play this style. And, you know, Giroux is doing his goddamnest out there. Cam Atkinson has been on fire lately. Joel Farabee seems to be, you know, getting back on track, a little more comfortable. But uh, other than that, I mean, your offense has been just, just piss poor for most of the season. And uh, it's really kind of coming through here. Uh, now that you're trying to transition to more of an offensively driven game. You had a tweet, obviously facetious, about like Michel tearing the power play. And I feel like you've had a good read on this for a while. And you're obviously not saying that Michel Terry was God's gift to running a power play. And he certainly shouldered a lot of the blame, if not the majority of it. But like when you look at the power play now against when Terry was running it, and they have done exceptionally better for stretches, but there still are times where they look lost. What do you think Terrian was doing wrong when he was here? And now where do you think the players shoulder some of the blame? I, I I actually did not mind 
Michelle Terrian's approach this season. I think last year was bullshit. Last year was just piss poor, you know, same five people, same five passes every fucking night, every single goddamn opportunity, and it sucked. I do think he tried to do stuff this year, and this is something we talked about quite a bit on Frequent Flyer earlier in the season, like, how much of this is on Tarion versus how much of this is on the players just being a group of shitheads, and, you know, the power play may be firing with a little bit more success now, but they're still giving up a bunch of shorthanded chances, they're still, you know, having trouble even getting in the zone, it's still a lot of the same things that were plaguing them earlier in the year when Tarion was here. So, you know, I do think that the players harbor a fair amount to blame when it comes to just their inability to get set up. Uh, you know, in the power play, listen, this was an issue before Tarion showed up. It's an issue now that Tarion's gone. They have not had a successful power play in, what, fucking almost a decade now since Joe Mullen was here. Like, it's just, I, I do think the players are somewhat faulty. I just do not think this is a group of overly talented power play guys. Um, you know, outside of Claude Giroux, maybe Cam Atkinson, but I mean, JVR and Couturier and Konechny as your net front guys are all just suck. You don't have a good guy on the point right now. You just, there's just a lot of weaknesses from a player perspective as well. And sure, you know, Tarion was not innocent. I'm not trying to claim he was, but I do think there's a lot more going on here than just swapping out the coach and all of a sudden you're running a power play firing at, you know, 70%. I, I don't know why there's this refusal to try Ristolainen on the power play, even as a net front guy. Do you think it's because that they just want him to save his energy for, like, defensive responsibilities? It could be. Just try not to overload the guy. I just, I look at this power play, and look, it has been better under Yo. There's no denying that. Like, they were, like, bottom three in the NHL, and since Yo took over, I think they're at least in the top half. Yeah, they're 14. So they're clicking at 23% over Yo, as opposed to 13 or whatever under Terry. And so the proof is there, and I do think overall they are better. But it's just there's sometimes, like, that five-on-three against the Sharks, like, they just don't have enough talent <laughs> like there's nowhere else to put it like there's no guy on this team aside from Claude Giroux that would be a top like power play guy on like any like top 10 team in the NHL no, you know what no. I mean like they, like even Travis Konechny like he's not a good power play guy no nope. like at all like okay they tried JVR in the bumper position now which I guess fine I guess it works well because you need a right-hand shot when Giroux's on the left side, kind of like what they did with Wayne Simmons. But like you said, I I like that Terry thought outside the box a bit. Like, I thought for the guys that they had this season, Giroux on the right side actually wasn't awful because arguably your best shooter, actually I don't, don't even think it's a debate, but whatever, is Cam Atkinson. So if he's in the trigger position, Giroux has to be on the left side. And then as I advocated for, you could have put Risto on the other wall. It's just, I, and I, I do think it comes down to that people overvalue coaching sometimes. Like, they think that the coaches are literally, like, controlling them yes. with a PlayStation yep. remote out there. And when it comes down to, I think it, that pe it comes down to the players buying what the coaches are selling. And clearly, they weren't buying whatever Terry was selling. And maybe, you know, Giroux hated being on the right side. Who the fuck knows? We weren't there. And they have performed better under Daryl Williams. It's 100% clear on in statistics. But it's like, it comes down to the thing with AV too. Like, how much better 
do you think this team will be with another coach? And, you know, I'm just waiting for the for the fans to turn on Mike Yo. I'm just oh, waiting for a that. a matter yeah. of time, yeah. <laughs> and do you think it's kind of like a loser's race for him right now? Like, do you think he's kind of in a no-lose situation, aside from the fact that he's buddy-buddy with the GM? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, what could he do here? Well, either way, do you think no matter how bad this season goes, he's back next year? Right now, I would put my money on Mike Yao coming back next year, yeah. Because he has the vote of confidence. It's so funny that people actually thought, like, oh, yeah, they're just trying to hammer out a, a contract with Talkett, and he'll be here they're soon. They're just going like, to get Bruce Boudreau. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like you – like, I don't know how people didn't see this coming, like, two and a half years away. The second they hired yep. Mike Yo, yep. you knew. Yep. You knew he was going to be the next guy. Yep. And great dude. I have – I. He's a fantastic guy, but it's – like I've said in the past, I've never been a huge fan of going from coaches to assistants. And I think Yo was the good cop in that locker room. I really do feel that way. And you see him on the bench too. He looks buddy-buddy with the players. And, like, I guess that's fine. You usually do the flip and flop from, like, the hard coach to the players coach to the hard coach to the players coach. You know, like, we saw it with, you know, Stevens to Lavi and then Baruby to Hack, like – we see that often, but it's just like, I don't know, man. Yo was here too. And I guess you could say that he was in charge of the PK, but the PK was a fucking mess last year and the defense <laughs> was a mess last year. Like, I don't know. Like, it's, I know why he's there. I, I get the good cop and I know he's good friends with the management team, but it's just like, can we try something different? But at the same time, I don't get think it would fucking matter who the coach is. Like, yeah, sure. Bruce Boudreaux is doing excellently with, Vancouver, but you know Vancouver is a good has a good roster on. Look paper. at that roster compared to the Flyers roster. It's not even the same ballpark. Just the centermen, just their top two centers, <laughs> Pedersen, Horvat, like just that alone. Like I just, I, I look, I I don't really care who the coach is at this point. And like I've said in the past, like I'm glad that, like I'm so happy that Vigneault isn't here anymore and that Thompson isn't playing that all their scapegoats are gone. Like now we could just move on to someone else and risk the line is playing well. So the three biggest scapegoats for a lot of flyers, Twitter aren't even in the mix right now, but it's like, they still just will go around the fact that they just won't acknowledge it. Now they're not blaming it on eight times. Now they're just flat out, not even acknowledging that there's a problem. Yeah. Now, now it's kind of, now the scapegoat is kind of like Yandel, Provorov, who else? Uh, no forwards the forwards apparently are jesus christ and his disciples like no one can mm-hmm. talk bad about the yeah. forwards here like no one will say anything about travis Konechny. well oscar limblom he's a bottom six winger like who really gives Konechny, a shit like jvr like katoria speaking of sean katoria have you noticed that he is not in the lineup yet has it been a noticeable absence for sean katoria it has not, has it? If you, if, if I, if if I did not know he was missing, I would not even know. I wouldn't think twice about it. I would just assume he was in the lineup, not doing anything as always, because he's that <laughs> minuscule in games. It doesn't matter. He's so irrelevant at what he's doing these days that it doesn't even matter that he's not in the game. The only thing that I've 
that made me notice that he's not there is because Kevin Hayes is playing more now, and I don't think Hayes has been good. That's what someone, I know that's what someone told me. Night. They said, well, Drew's playing center now. That's why I know it. <laughs> like, okay, that makes sense. But, like, outside of that, like, no, from a game yeah, perspective, you, you can't from tell. From offensively, from making other players better, no, you don't notice him because, oh, he does all the little things. Right? I don't care. Like, <laughs> Fine, great. You could go fucking sign Phil Dano to do that, like the Kings did. We saw him last night. Like that's what you—you you don't have a top line center who you're going to be paying close to eight million dollars soon to do the little things right. You pay that kind of money to make players around you better. And again, like I just—I—I I just want to fuck it. Like I don't even want to talk about it anymore because, like you said. Play, people will just not acknowledge when you're wrong. And you know what? It's fine to be wrong sometimes. For fuck's sakes, man. Like, I said that they, this team was within a, a, a transaction or two of being a cup contender. I was fucking wrong. It's fine to be wrong sometimes. Two years ago, I said Provorov was going to win a Norris one day. I was wrong. It's fine. But, like, this inability to admit that you just made a bad take or you, you had a wrong opinion. It's okay. It's the same thing with the Risto thing. You know, people now have shifted from he's the worst defenseman to the NHL to, well, it wasn't that I thought he was the worst defenseman <laughs> in the NHL. It's that they overpaid. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. No, it was. It was that was just a bit more ammunition for you to reinforce your argument. Yep. But now that he's proven to be a competent second pair defenseman that we all said he was going to be. No one ever said like, oh, yeah, he's going to come in here and be a top pairing, you know, shot down guy. We knew what he was, and he's been good for what he was brought in to do. Now we've shifted to, oh, no, it's because you can't pay that much for a second-pair defenseman. That's You know what? I've heard that so many. We heard the same thing with Justin Braun. Oh, two second-round picks. How could you? The the world is going to implode. The sun is going to explode now. now. How could you do <laughs> Like, even that, like, you gave up Robert Hag. A first and a second. Does anyone expect Eisen Rosen to be anything worth a shit within the next year or two? Probably not. And then people try and bring in, well, you trade a ghost and a second and a seventh to bring in, like, Ristolent. Like, is anyone really prepared to say that they would have rolled in with ghosts for this year just so they could hoard assets? Like, I thought we are past the hoarding. I think a vast majority of people would have rather done that. Which is unfortunate. For sure. Just just so they could go run on to cap friendly, look at the draft pick, uh, you know, a pool and be like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> we have our second round pick. Thank God our seventh in 2023 is still there. Calm down, everyone. It's okay. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get this fucking thought process. Like, okay, even if Rosen turns into be Travis Konechny in three years. Oh, great. What a waste of a fucking player that would be. We don't need another one. We have one. <laughs> but, it, but it always comes down to, you know, people rather be shit than improve your roster. And I don't want to hear that there's not an improved roster with Risto over Ghost. It is for what they needed. Yes. For, he's a hand in this, all this. He's made Sanheim better. That debate, there, there's no more debate around that. It's not me saying Ghost is bad. It's just saying for what this team needed, Risto was the better player. But you rather not improve the team just not to overpay for an asset because we're scared of making trades. Yeah. Ron Hextall dies hard, apparently. Yep. Like That's like the, the Chicago Blackhawks when they traded a first-round pick and I think a third-round pick 
to go get Antoine Vermette. Oh, but Vermette, he's only like a third line center. Well, they won a cup. Who gives a shit? And look, I understand that Risto clearly wasn't the difference between winning a cup or not. But like we talk about it all the time. Do you want to get the player or do you want to be left with your dick in your hands because you were afraid to overpay by a draft pick or two? Like, is that the big thing? If they would have dumped Ghost for nothing and traded a first and hag for um, Ristolainen, would that have made things better? If you just had two more second round picks that could result in fucking Pascal LeBerge? Like, I, like maybe they'll re- and result in something. Maybe it'll be Ilya Sorokin and Brandon Carlo. Like that. Who knows? But, like... Like, I'm just so far past that. Like, and you look at other people who were on the market, like, what, five right shot defensemen moved this summer and Fletcher picked up two of them? Like, these guys are hard to come by. We've seen it. So, uh, I just, I don't know. This thought process that you have to not try anything because you may overpay, like, I've never understood it. I've never understood it. It's a very, uh, Ron Hextall way of thinking, and if anything, it's been very clear that that thought process has died hard uh, since he has been gone, and <laughs> I don't know, this is just one of those, th- I think there would be a, if I had to guess, there's a significant portion of the fan base that would have much rather just ran back into this year with Phil Myers and Shane Goss's bear, and everything would have just been perfectly fine and happy and dandy then they would have made any trades at all, you know, and because and, we all hate wrist aligning because he sucks so bad and this and that. And it's just, I don't know. I'm very much over uh, a lot of this Ron Hextall fan nonsense and uh, <sighs> very draining, very draining as a, uh, <laughs> as a fan these days to still hear people just terrified of making moves and everyone's still drooling over fucking, Shane Goss's bear who's just existing. I don't know. I can't. I, this whole thing is stupid. Speaking of players that they traded away and won a cup, uh, Braden Shen. The Braden Shen trade, 1,653 days after they traded Braden Shen, Joel Farabee and Morgan Frost score in the same game for the Flyers. Uh, I mean, look, that I've always kind of maintained the same thing about that trade, and I'll beat that drum again, is that in terms of pure value, that was a very good trade for the Flyers. It really, in a vacuum, was just a good hockey trade for both teams. Like you've said numerous times, I don't think St. Louis fans know a goddamn thing about Joel Farabee or Morgan Frost. Nope. That being said, for where the Flyers were entering 2017-18, there was no reason to make that trade. None. You know, Farabee didn't even show up on a full-time basis until, what was it, halfway through 1920? Yeah. And Frost only showed up now. So, like, those guys have only really become impact players in the NHL three and a half, four years after that trade was made. Again, I think that both those players can be good players for a long time in this league. Farabee probably more so than Frost. I have nothing against those players individually. But if you go back to where the Flyers were in 17-18, three years into Ron Hextall's tenure, entering year four, I believe, into his tenure, and the Flyers were a good team that year. It was the best season under Ron Hextall by far. They could have sorely used a Braden Shen. Or you could have traded Braden Shen for a fucking defenseman. One or the other, you know. If you felt that Braden Shen was expendable, at least go get a top four right shot defenseman to play with Provrov or Shane Gossespierre. 
but it made no sense to just take Braden Chen off your roster for nothing aside from Yori Laterra in the immediate future. You know, I would have much rather had Braden Chen playing left uh, second line left wing with Philpula and Simmons than Jordan Wheel, just to say. So I'll maintain the same thing. In a vacuum, very good trade in terms of value, just made absolutely no sense at the time it was made. You know who the Flyers could really use right now? Braden Shen. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and he, they. Could you know who they could have used since they traded him? Actually, Braden Shen. <laughs> hmm. Who could they have used in the twenty twenty bubble? Uh, Braden Shen. He was a good player, man. He was like Mike Richards light. Yeah, he, he just was... never fit in positionally here. That was the problem. You can never carve out well, a spot all... down the middle and then just played on the wings and was up and down and consistency issues really uh, struggled. But, I mean, looking back, I mean, fuck. 25 goals, 26 goals, 20 goals, 40 points, 59 points, 55 points. Good. He was all over a, a very good player. I have very fond memories of uh, Braden Shen from his time here. And he would fight. He could hit. He was very... He was good on the power play, if memory serves me correctly. He was a good uh, successor to Scott Hartnell in the bumper position. 28 power play points in 16-17. Wow. 22 was, in 16-16. There was no need. And you know what? And I don't know if this is true. Maybe it's just um, maybe it's just irony or whatever. But it was like any player with character Ron Hextel drove out of here. Yep. Like Hartnell out, Shen out, Ryan White out. Like I'm surprised he, Simmons lasted so long. Yeah, he was the only one. He was the only one, and at least that, like Shen and Simmons and Hartnell, like those guys brought character to the team. They brought a different element to the team, as opposed to the skill guys like Giroux and Voracek. Like they were good complementary players. Like I remember Shen Giroux Voracek was a pretty good line at one point. Yeah. Or. I, or even like when they had like Shen with Katori and Simmons, like that was a good second line. They had Raffle up with Giroux and uh, Voracek. Like Shen was versatile. You are right that he didn't really carve out a specific role per se, but he was kind of like a Swiss Army knife. He could play any forward position. He was good on the power play. Like like I said, he brought like a different element that he could fight and whatnot. He was a good hitter too. I like the Shen brothers, both of them, to be quite honest with yeah. you. But obviously, Luke Shen was just a bottom pair guy. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, It's a shame that they traded him. Not because I don't like Farabee and Frost, obviously. Like, they're they're fine players. And I'm sure one day Farabee will be maybe arguably an even better player than Braden Shen, although not a center. But I don't know. It's just at the time that trade was made, just it made no sense, man. It made absolutely no sense. Like that was a year there. Like seventeen, eighteen was supposed to be the year they kind of broke out, yep. right? But then it just resulted in fucking disappointment. Remember how that was like Giroux's best year, Voracek's best year, Ghost's best year. Probably not Provorov. I think Provorov was better in nineteen twenty. But like, I think that was the last year that Simmons was uh, like a pretty decent player yeah he had what 28 goals that year something like that it was you know they could have used him but like i said if you wanted to trade him because you felt he was expendable fine but then at least go get a defenseman at least that or go get a fucking center or an actual (laughs) center i don't fucking know just something your goalie anything nope you're latera and future yep but (sighs) 
This makes you depressed, man. Oh, we're so fucked. It's never going to get any better than it was. You think so? <sighs> Not at this point. You kidding me? Unless they walk into Bedard and then he'll show up and be Nolan Patrick 2.0 just for funsies. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's yeah. It sucks because when you think back to that team that Hextall took over, you know, with Hartnell and Shen and Simmons and Drew and Vorchek and young Sean Couturier, Steve Mason, you know, all they needed to do was, you know, maybe go into retool for two years, draft Ivan Provorov, draft Travis Sanheim, and then you could have fucking connected me, whatever. After 14-15 and 15-16, it should have been all systems go. Yep. You should have Scott Hartnell. Like, that fucking trade for Amberger, like, what the fuck did that accomplish? Well, you saved a couple million dollars, and then everyone ended up getting bought out anyway. <laughs> and and you got a fourth-round pick that got you Misha Veropia. Oh, so. well, shit! Legendary Flyers <laughs> forward. 3C extraordinaire during the 2019 preseason Misha Veropia. Pardon me, I apologize. I will. I know I've told this story probably two dozen times right now, but I will always remember it was JJ and um, I think it was Jones. They were interviewing um, Hextall in one of the at the preseason game. I think it was the last preseason game in 2018. Pardon me. And they were asking this and that, and you know who's been good, this and that, and uh, with this stupid fucking shit grin on his face, he's just like. Well, Misha Vorobia has really knocked down the door here. And, like, literally when I have nightmares and wake up screaming in the middle of the night, I hear that. Just on the loop. And they're just on a loop. Because that was the year that they didn't go and get Ryan O'Reilly or Tyler Bozak or whoever the fucking else center was on the on the market that year. No, no. Nolan Patrick and Misha Vorobia. Your 2-3 punch. Fuck, that was the um, same press conference, I believe, where he went in and talked about how he had confidence in Michael Neuwirth and Brian Elliott as a goalie tandem. Oh, my God. That was criminal, man. That <sighs> was so fucking... Like, you literally moved on from Steve Mason to go roll with a platoon Elliott and Neuwirth tandem. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is wrong? <laughs> I remember at the... I, I remember that I wanted them to go with Mason Stolarz. That's yeah. the pair I That would have been my, uh, my pick. But they're just like, no, 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 You could have Mason Stolarz, or you could have injury-pro Michael Neuwirth and 55-year-old Brian Elliott, who looks like a muffin. Who was Your fresh pick. off of core muscle surgery. Twice! Because of that. And literally got run out of town in Calgary, embarrassed yep. himself in the play. Oh, my God. And you know what? I, I, Brian Elliott, as a backup, I think was fine if you brought him in. Even if you brought in Elliott to play behind fucking Steve Mason, I think it would have been okay. But, oh my god, <laughs> what a fucking mess. I, I like the Mason-Emery tandem. That was a good tandem. That was a good one, yeah. Just, he ruins so much. Like, how have they still not been, and this is also on Fletcher at this point, at this point how have you not signed a third-line center? How? How, how I have no happen? idea. I have no idea how, out of all the fucking shit you did this summer, how you just blatantly ignored your third-line center role again! Like, how long, again, Braden Shen probably, was the last time you had, like, decent center depth. How did you ignore it? all the shit you did this year? And I get like, there were other holes that needed your attention this year. Fine. But for Christ's sake, how did you not even bring in somebody to play 3C? You brought back Nate Thompson, of all people. Like, c 
come on! I was all over Sam Reinhardt. Why didn't you bring me Sam Reinhardt? God damn it. Yeah, I don't get it, but... Okay, now I'm depressed. I gotta go take a nap. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the Flyers are back. Let's see, what the hell are we doing this week? Tuesday versus Anaheim. Thursday versus Pittsburgh. Saturday versus San Jose. And uh, schedule picks up as normal. Shane's back tomorrow. I assume we're back Tuesday. Sisterly Pod Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, I believe is uh, Frequent Flyer. Is that the name of that show? Yeah. Yeah, that's the name of that show. We'll go with it. So, uh, yeah, everything's back to normal around here. The holidays are over. And uh, we're going to have some more shitty hockey to talk about, I'm sure, when they get their shit kicked in by the Ducks in a couple days. That's going to be a rough one. But, uh, yeah, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod. Some new stuff on the website coming up on Monday as well. So check that out. And, uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at AidMarco25. All right, everyone. Until next time, goodbye and good night.